Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the life and career of Eusebia Palladino, one of the most powerful physical mediums of the late 19th, early 20th century, and certainly one of the most controversial figures in the history of psychical research. My guest is Dr. Carlos Alvarado. He is the author of Charles Riche, a Nobel Prize winning scientist's exploration of psychic phenomena. He is also the author of Getting Started in Parapsychology, and Carlos is certainly one of the world's foremost experts on the history of psychical research. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Carlos. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's my pleasure to see you again. We're going to be talking today about Eusapia Palladino. She must be certainly one of the most controversial figures in the entire history of psychical research. Yeah, that's true. She's a fascinating, controversial, and uh, very important, I will say, in the development of early psychical research. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say important because I know that there are some skeptics uh, who have written and, and who loudly proclaim she was caught cheating. Therefore, anything she does is completely irrelevant. And the psychical researchers who investigated her over a 20-year period were uh, wasting their time and making fools of themselves. Well, I, I would not agree with that for, for several reasons. Uh, for once, I, I think uh, those psychical researchers knew very well what they were doing. They knew much better than the current critics that talk without knowing the material very well and without having experience with physical mediums, uh, most of them. And second, I would argue that even if you accept that everything she did was fraudulent, and I do not think that was the case. But even if you accept that, her influence was extremely important. That's one of the reasons why I have been interested in her for a long time. Everything she did influenced a lot of researchers to develop theories, to develop methodology, and that affected psychical research. Well, why don't we uh, begin by giving our viewers a, a little bit of biographical background. Uh, she was born in Italy, for example. Yes, uh, she was born in 1854 and uh, lived up to 1918. And uh, she was uh, very well known in Italy and outside. And when she started, she was performing only in small groups in Italy. Uh, and uh, was known to the spiritists there, but not to the outside world. And slowly, you know, one thing leading to another, uh, she started going out into the world because her performances were extraordinary. You know, she was mainly a medium of physical effects. Uh, 
mainly table levitations, movement of objects, uh, luminous effects, you know, lights will appear around her or will float in the seance room, and also materialization phenomena. She, she did not produce too many full body materializations. They were mainly hands and uh, limbs, but their records, particularly of seances uh, held in Italy, in, in which people report uh, full form figures that appear, including figures that resemble people that they knew that had died. So that, that adds up to the, to the interest uh, of her case. I know that uh, she attracted the attention of, uh, I guess you would pronounce it, Cesare Lombroso. And, you know, before I entered the field of parapsychology, I got a master's degree in criminology, and Lombroso was considered really the father of modern criminology, a very famous scholar uh, in, in that discipline. Yeah, Lombroso was really big in, in Italy and, and international. He had a big reputation as a criminologist, but also as a psychiatrist. He had a lot of ideas that today would not be considered, you know, popular, such as the biological inferiority of women, uh, certain physical traits that characterize criminals that I believe that those things are not accepted today. But at the time, I'm talking the late 1870s, 1880s, and even up to the 1890s, he was very influential in all those disciplines. So he was really a big name. And at one point, uh, some spiritists were trying to convince him to investigate uh, the psychic phenomena, uh, particularly they wanted him to have seances with Paladino. At first, he could not do it. He did not want to take the time or, you know, the reasons are kind of obscure. But at one point, he had seances around 1891. And uh, what he witnessed really shook him up. You know, he went in thinking that all those things were fraud, you know, not very well attested uh, testimony for phenomena. And uh, all of a sudden he found that he was the witness and he was, see was seeing the table going up and down. When he looked around, the medium was not touching the table. Basically, he became convinced that the medium uh, was real. Was it interesting in his case is that he, he believed Eusapia was a real medium, but he also felt or he also believed, following his ideas in psychiatry, that she was a hysteric, that, that she had a pathological personality. And, and there was a curious and fascinating combination between uh, the pathology of her nervous system and real psychic phenomena. So things were real moving, he thought, because there was a force coming out of her body, and that force will come out more easily because she was a hysteric that could not control her nervous system in the normal way, and all that energy that was usually inside the body kind of went out, directed by some intelligence, but that, that was basically his explanation. And that explanation was, what was more novel was the whole combination with hysteria, because, you know, he was very well conversant with the 
studies of hysteria uh, uh, from coming from France and other places. But the whole idea of, of having a pathology of the nervous system existed before him. But nonetheless, he, he, because he was so eminent, he popularized that idea and wrote extensively about it. And even, but even, even more important than that was that his endorsement of the medium really counted for, for much in, in her in the early reputation of Osapia. He was so eminent that a lot of people, uh, including journalists in, in Italy, uh, stopped and said, well, if the great Lombroso is endorsing uh, uh, Paladino, Maybe there is something behind all of this. And then that, that started attracting a lot of, you know, articles and um, investigators, uh, seances were held, and, and she was launched into the world uh, after uh, Lombroso wrote about her. Uh, let's talk a bit about her personality. Uh, I gather that she was really uh, came from a very impoverished background and uh, had almost no education. Yes, that's true. He had, she had no education. Uh, I can't say that she she didn't know how to read. She learned to to write her name, but other than that, she she had no no background in in anything that you would call you know normal education in in Italy or or elsewhere, and. Uh, but she was a very shrewd and I will, I will say very intelligent. Uh, the accounts that you find, and a lot of these things is, is written in the reports, you know, around the reports of the seances, you get all these little details of her personality, the way she looked, the way she smiled, uh, the way that she behaved, that she really knew what she was doing she really knew that a lot of the people around her were very much above her social station in life. You know, she was sitting with people from nobility, uh, for people from science. Uh, and uh, here she was, who had a, a lot of, of people call an ignorant peasant woman that was attracting all these people that were fascinated uh, with her. She was also known to be extremely impatient. Uh, people that were skeptics, uh, she did not suffer them well. Uh, although on occasion it was the opposite. She tried to perform for them to convince them. But there are there are times on record that on record, especially Lombroso writing that that he has seen her getting extremely angry at someone and almost to the point of getting up and going to the person and beating the person with her fist. I don't think that ever happened. At least I, I have not seen an account, but Lombroso said that, that she came really close. So she was very volatile, you know, and, and other people say that they saw that in her emotional makeup, that, that sometimes, you know, she was talking to you and all of a sudden she started crying. Uh, because she was talking about a poor orphan child that she knew and and she was moved uh, really easily. So she combined all these uh, things. At the same time, uh, there was the, her propensity to commit fraud. Uh, a lot of her investigators, especially those uh, that knew more about trickery, basically knew that she, she was uh, committing uh, trickery during the seances. 
you know, usually they were sitting on a table and people were controlling her. She had both hands controlled by someone, you know, one hand on one side, one hand on the other. They were holding her, the hands on the table. But there were people like, for example, here at Carrington, that was a British researcher that lived mainly in the United States. And he was, he wrote a textbook about psychic fraud with mediums. And, uh, and he said he saw her on one occasion, on one of many, that she released one of her hands from control and basically moved her hand out, grabbed the curtain that was close by and basically pulled the curtain. And of course, in semi-darkness, for some people will see, oh, the curtain moved. This is, this is great. But it was her doing that. She will do things like that. Or, or she will, when she will liberate one of her hands, she will go and will, in the darkness, touch someone in the face or tap them or hit the table to make a sound. Uh, simple tricks like that. But people like Carrington and many others were very careful to say, yeah, we, we have seen those things happening. And, uh, but we have control for those things. First, they, most of them said, we have seen physical effects taking place at a distance. So there is a very interesting account of Lombroso saying how he saw a piece of furniture from the other side of the room slowly coming in kind of in little jumps and approach the seance table. And here he was looking at that, having the medium in front of him and seeing that piece of furniture coming from the other side. That That's one of those examples that the type of fraud that she committed, you know, could not really explain what happened. And there were many other accounts and many, many other seances where they were very careful to, to control for those things. And nonetheless, I mean, most of the people, not all, but I would say over 95% of those that had many seances with her became convinced that there was real phenomena in the seances. And uh, it, was, it was a question of giving her an, an opportunity to get into the seance, get into the mood. And the mood was very important because they had really to be very nice to her. You know, that was also part of her personality. She loved uh, to be given importance, to be treated respectfully, especially from people that were very eminent. And a lot of those people had money, a lot of money, so they will give her jewels. They will, when she will visit them, uh, they will take her out to the theater. They will have dinners in which a lot of people will come to see the great Eusapia. And, and she loved she loved that. That was part of her personality. And they believed that, that that was extremely important for her to be happy, for her to, to be satisfied from the way she has been treated. That was very important uh, so that later on she was in a good mood and that phenomena would happen. I understand one of the uh, characteristics, uh, even though she wasn't necessarily a very beautiful woman, she seemed to be very seductive. And critics often accuse the uh, researchers who endorsed her of, of having sexual affairs with her. Yes, well, I, I don't know of any sexual affairs uh, that, you know, were, were reported, but certainly ideas like that were proposed. Uh, the main one was a, a woman named Laura Finch that was the editor of the Annals of Psychical Science. That was a journal devoted to psychical research. She wrote 
an article was around 1909 and uh, basically it was a very curious article because it, she was trying to insinuate in a, in a soft and then later in the article no very soft way you know much more direct directly that that there was this uh, sexual energy uh, or behavior that she projected most of her sitters being male and uh, she said that 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 as a woman she was able to influence the men around her and her whole argument it, it was not so clear about how that happened I mean there were gestures and you know she would get the hand of one one of the researchers and perhaps you know would put her in her face or or will just squeeze it or we you know, will do things like that and uh, but her idea was that the men were not really great observers when they were in this state of seduction it was like a like a hypnotic seduction thing uh, again that I that's that's a fascinating in in terms of the personalities involved I find all those things fascinating but certainly that that really cannot account for a lot of things among them these many photographs of objects floating tables levitated I don't think a table can be seduced, you know, by by anyone. It doesn't matter how how attractive they are. And certainly, you you were right. She was most during most of her life. She was not a particularly attractive woman. And most most of her photos, with some exceptions, most of her photos, she she comes out as what people will frankly say, ugly. That she was ugly, not attractive. But still, she had a lot of presence. There were earlier uh, photographs in where I will say that she looks very nice. You know, the, it, it, it depends, you know, how the biases that you bring and all that. But she had certainly a lot of personality and she projected a very strong persona or who she was. Still, that strong persona could melt in many occasions, especially with very particular uh, sitters that she knew, like one one of the persons that she liked a lot was Charles Richet, and we we talked about him before. Uh, she really she really liked him, and she called him Carlo, 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 and and we talk you know a lot to him and respected him highly. The same with Lombroso. It, it was said that she called Lombroso Papa Lombroso, and that there was like a relationship of. Of that she was being an, like an adopted child of, of, of Cesare Lombroso. So there were all these fascinating things uh, happening with the investigators. But uh, I think that, that all that social psychology also is very important and certainly I think most probably affected the development of the phenomena. I don't think it can explain things via fraud and all that, just saying that people were hypnotized or seduced by her. I, I think that the, when you read the accounts and the different people that were there and the different seances, the different conditions, uh, I think explanations like that really do not fit the facts. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I know in our previous, uh, one of our previous conversations, we talked about Charles Roche and how he was a Nobel laureate uh, physiologist who uh, held seances with 
Palladino and endorsed her work, but she also worked with uh, very famous scientists like uh, uh, Marie and Pierre Curie, the uh, discoverers of radium, also to uh, uh, other Nobel laureates who uh, also, um, at least Pierre, I understand, endorsed her phenomena as real. Yeah, I think both Pierre and Marie were really believed that, that the phenomena were real. And just before Pierre died, he died in, a, in an accident in Paris. And uh, just before he died, he was developing ideas about how to test the, the power behind the, these, uh, these events. You know, at, at that time, almost everyone believed that to explain the phenomena that she produced, materializations, movement of objects, there had to be some type of force coming out of the body of the medium. And people speculated in different ways about the force. You know, that, that was a Lombroso's idea. That was idea of almost everyone that studied her in detail talk about that force. They call it nervous force, vital force. And it was conceptualized kind of like a, a biophysical type force, like a, a magnetic force, but not the same as magnetism. Something peculiar to the human body. And that it could be directed either by the mind of the medium, in this case by Osapia, or by the mind of the circle, you know, everyone being there, all their beliefs, or by discarnate uh, spirits. And the investigators, you know, have different ideas, but most of them accepted this idea that there was this kind of biophysical uh, force. And, P and Pierre Curie w was very interested in, in testing that idea and supposedly in correspondence that, that I have not seen, they, he, he had ideas about what to do with it and how to move forward. And it's, it's a shame that he did not have the, the opportunity, you know, of, of doing something further. But many others uh, work with that uh, concept. Uh, with hers, a very important figure in Italy was Enrico Morselli. Morselli was a psychiatrist that was also like Lombroso, perhaps a little less famous, but very well regarded in, in Italy. And he published in 1908 a, a two-volume book full of reports of seances and ideas of a biopsychic force that... Uh, came out from the medium. He was very anti-spiritistic, so he he developed that concept to trying trying to put down the, the spiritistic uh, model. And uh, he was very influential among theoreticians. And uh, he was also a friend of Osapia and observed her from the point of view of her medical uh, makeup. You know, he, he says a lot of things about her nervous system, about how she had developed at some point diabetes in her life, and supposedly that caused her death later on in 1918. So, you know, there is so much information about, about her, a lot of it in sources that are in French and in Italian. They, they don't, they're not cited so often in the English language literature uh, about her. So uh, that, that's one of the reasons why I, I think there is still so much about her mediumship that needs to be explored and needs to be brought into the, 
into the English language. I, I should mention, uh, in case some of our viewers get curious, I think you have a cat who just crossed in front of the camera. Yes, I, I have a cat. I'm trying to, to keep her out. <laughs> <laughs> She's not a mischievous spirit. No, no, it's not. It's, it's not one of Osapia's uh, materializations. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the Society for Psychical Research uh, in England, I gather, uh, did held some seances with her uh, early on in her career, relatively early, I, if I remember correctly, 1903, and uh, developed an official policy, I gather, that they later reversed. That they they said initially, this woman is obviously a fraud. We want nothing to do with her. But then they seem to have. Uh, developed a later opinion of a different nature. Yes, that that's true. They, the Society for Psychical Research, they had like two main investigations. One took place in 1895 at Cambridge. Basically, they brought the medium over there and they whined and, you know, they took her out to theater. They, they did a lot of things for her, but those seances was really a disaster for her reputation because it, they concluded that everything was either ambiguous or that there was fraud. And certainly there was fraud as there had been before and as, as there was after. Uh, the SPR being so prestigious uh, affected the reputation of the medium and, and there were many controversies with the European researchers, many of which argue that the SPR investigation really did not consider that the medium was not a physical instrument, that the medium was a human being and needed to be treated as such. And it was not only a question of sit there, let's produce the phenomena, let's hold your hands and, and that's it. That they, they had to have a more subtle approach, a more sensitive approach to, to her psychology. And, and it has been argued by many, by Richet, by Ohorovic, which was a, a Polish researcher that whole, uh, wrote a whole article criticizing the SPR investigation, making arguments of that sort. But the fact remains that, that the Cambridge investigation at that time, 1895, re really put the mediumship down and affected her reputation all around. The, the policy came out and they were saying, you know, we're we are going to avoid mediums that, that have a reputation of fraud. I mean, they had done similar things before with much earlier mediums in the 1880s that they thought were suspicious. They decided we're not going to deal with them. But with Paladino, it was a more, more of a more obvious, more outspoken uh, position. Uh, much later, well, not much later, a few years later in 1908, they form a commission that was form of Everard Fielding, uh, William Bagley, and Herod Carrington, the well-known researcher, to investigate her again. Because, you know, there had been so much criticism of the investigation before, and these guys were very well qualified. All of them knew a lot about trickery, about mediumistic fraud, and they went to Naples, rented uh, some rooms in a hotel and decided to have a series of seances that in, ma in many ways reversed the 
the position of the SPR. The investigators at first were very skeptical. Carrington was very skeptical. He had written before about the medium thinking that she was not real at all. And uh, nonetheless, all of them observed phenomena under their own conditions. The, they, they said this was amazing. These things are real. And they said so in the, in the report that came out in 1909, in one of the proceedings of the society. And uh, it, was, it was an extremely influential report because of the reputation of the researchers that they were really well qualified, but also the way it was written, whenever there was a phenomena, one of the things that they will say was, okay, the table was raised on the opposite right-hand side. What, what is the control? And then the guy that was holding the left leg or the hand, or they will say, um, I was holding her, I'm sure I had her under control. Carrington or Fielding will say, I can say the same from the other side. It, it could not have been her. And so, you know, they documented so many things under very specific conditions that at the end they had to say, you know, after a few seances, our skepticism vanished because of our experience. And certainly not everyone accepted those results. In modern times, there have been criticisms of the report, uh, unconvincing in, in my opinion, but that, that's basically what happened. And one of the problems in dealing with these things is that these phenomena are considered by so many people to be so incredible that anything that you can say to put them down in the minds of some is enough to erase the best evidence that can be recorded. You know, even if there were people there with, in full light and they will all see the thing moving and all that with nothing around, something extremely clear with photographs, even that can be debunked when you say, oh, come on, you really believe that tables can float and it's very easy to ridicule stuff like that. And when you talk about hands that will appear and touch people, that, that applies even more. But that's one of the lessons I think cases like this bring to mind that there are many things that are incredible that may even sound absurd, but nonetheless they happen and, and it's just our lack of knowledge to explain them that makes them so incredible. And that's what a lot of people will say. Richer was one of them say that he will say, yeah, I know it's absurd, it's, but nonetheless it's true. I saw it, I witnessed it. And there were so many researchers that found results with her, not only close to in the table, some of them had instruments that were, were affected, you know, balances, the things, balances not used normally to, to weigh things like letters or other things. She was able to affect them and she was able to, to turn switches on and off, you know, there were switches that they would have a switch that if you will turn it on one side, it will, a, a light will come on. And in some senses, the, the switch was going click, click, back back and forth, and the light was coming on and off, coming on and off. And the guys was looking at it, and there was nothing close to the switch. And nonetheless, the thing was happening. So I, I think when you, when you see all the evidence in the best uh, reports coming in, it's, it's very difficult to just to reject the whole thing, even at the face of how incredible and astounding the phenomena looks.
You know, I did an earlier interview with a fellow named David Jaher, who wrote a book called The Witch of Lime Street about another great physical medium, uh, Marjorie Crandon in the United States, who produced a lot of similar phenomena, maybe a decade or so after Eusapia. And, and very much the same sort of controversy arose, uh, where you had people uh, testifying, this is absolutely real, and other people saying, you know, you're an idiot, it's impossible, it, it can't be real. And I'm under the impression that uh, at some point, a phenomenon of that sort, they, it either died away temporarily, or uh, maybe researchers got uh, tired of looking at it. I think J.B. Ryan at Duke University decided to take things in a very different direction with card-guessing experiments. Uh, what what do you think happened with in terms of the era of great physical mediums? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good question, and it's something that we all wonder. Uh, I think on one hand, there there is the thing that that times change and certain phenomena kind of go away for reasons that seem to be more social and, and cultural. Uh, for example, the classic era of hysteria that Charcot studied in France, you know, a, a lot of the observations of Charcot and his followers, a lot of people at the time and later were claiming that that was kind of created by the psychological and social environment of, of the times. And uh, I think certainly physical mediumship in a way is kind of similar. The times have changed. The, the support, even inside spiritualism for that type of phenomena was, is not this, it changed. It did not, was not the same as it was before, you know, before mediums were more encouraged, were more, trained to produce those phenomena, I think those things also change and there were less and less mediums to produce physical phenomena. But at the same time, the skepticism, you know, the situation became very difficult for a lot of the mediums. Certainly there, were, there was a lot of controversy in newspapers, in the, in the public eye. It didn't stay only in the parapsychology publications. So, being being a physical medium, I will assume, was difficult and was not a prestigious profession for some of them. So I think it's a combination of a lot of, of those events, including also the fact that I think psychical researchers themselves change. A lot of them did not want, at, at the time, basically, I mean, I'm talking more about the 1920s and getting into the 30s, did not want to be associated with this controversial phenomena. And I think that's a situation that happens now. A lot of people, I remember someone telling me that he did not want to go <laughs> or participate in some of these investigations in recent times. Some claims uh, that, that he, he said, you know, he had been invited to witness because he says that's professional suicide. If I go in and I endorse these things, my own colleagues will put me down. It will be so difficult to support this. So I think part of that is that we, we are not willing or have a lot of difficulty in supporting this type of macro phenomena, especially materialization phenomena that have a history of fraud and are so incredible looking. So 
<laughs> to make sure this long reply, I think it's a combination of, of events. You know, the investigators, the social cultural factors, and when you put that together, it certainly has caused cause this type of phenomena to be much less reported. It's, it, there are still places where these things are reported, and uh, there, are may, there are cases of materializations, you know, reported in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s. There are many cases from Brazil and other, other, uh, other countries, but it's not what it used to be. You know, there used to be a lot of physical mediums and a lot of the main researchers, uh, like Lombroso, like Fielding, and all the others, Richet, they were going after those cases to investigate. We don't see that now. I think most parapsychologists have changed their agenda for whatever reason. I know uh, I had some experience with Uri Geller. Uh, people don't call him a physical medium. They call him maybe a, a psychokinetic uh, subject or something along those lines. And of course, the, the context is completely different. But uh, again, he's producing physical phenomenon and uh, surrounded by uh, just an incredible amount of controversy. Yes. That, that, that's true. It's, 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 it's very similar. The, the Geller controversy, I think, was similar to the Palladino controversy in the old days. And we forget now about Palladino, but in her days, you know, you, you will find the, the newspapers were full of stories. Once I went into the microfilm section of a library and I was determined to get all the coverage about Paladino published in the New York Times. Because when Paladino came to New York, New York City, and she held seances between 1909 and 1910, and I knew there was a lot of material there, and sure enough, I, I sat in and I spent a few hours making photocopies. I still have those copies that I carry with me wherever I go. And... Uh, the public was hearing about that, and that was only one one newspaper in New York. There were many papers in New York. There were also Italian language newspapers in New York. Not to mention the French, Italian papers, you know, from Europe, from other places. These things were really going out of psychical research circles. The the world, at least the people that will read the news, uh, knew who Osapia Paladino was. And uh, the thing was really, all the controversies were out there. And as always, the issue of fraud was very popular with journalists. That happened within New York seances. You know, there was a lot of discussions of, of accusations of fraud and the like, because that sells papers. That's more sensational. It's, it's, it brings people to, into the matter than just simply saying, oh, yeah, phenomena happen, and how interesting. That, that doesn't doesn't make for good news. So that's a place, you know, to investigate a lot of the controversy, but it can get also out of hand because of all this, the need, you know, to, to, to basically make a name for yourself as a journalist or, or to make an interesting story. I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that on occasion she actually admitted that uh, she did commit fraud, and, and that she, I think she even said, if, if you don't have good controls and I can, I will. She, uh, she admitted it. And uh, 
the the issue, and that's another part reason why her leadership is so important, that she inspired all these theoretical ideas in researchers. And one of the ideas, other than ideas of biophysical force that I mentioned, there was a lot of that. But some of the ideas that she inspired were discussions of unconscious fraud. The whole idea, well, she's a medium, she falls in trance, and supposedly she had her trance are very complex with many, many gradations from very light to very deep. And uh, the idea was when a medium is in trance, they're not responsible to what they are doing. This person that I mentioned before, Julian Ochorovic, he wrote an article, he published it in 1896, the one that was criticizing the Cambridge sittings, but a lot of the article is to support this idea of unconscious fraud. And the idea is that, yes, she commits fraud, but what happens is that she is in trance, and there are all these demands from people around. We want to see phenomena. We came here to see you perform, and she feels the need to perform. But in many moments, her organism is not willing to release the energy that is necessary for the tables to move or other things to happen. So in her mind, what she does is that she fraudulently produces phenomena. And what this guy was uh, arguing in, her, in his article is, is that when she will reach with her hand and just knock in, on the table or do whatever with her own limb, in her mind, she was doing real telekinesis, but she could not put a difference. It was her organism was using her body to accomplish what needed to be done. Some of the times it was really the force going out, so it was a paranormal event. But other times, for her it was the same. You know, it was just the hand or or her legs or in some other way. There are a few instances where it seems that the fraud that she committed was not that unconscious. You know, there were things uh, that she may have planned and may have done on purpose. But in general, her mediumship in basically gave ideas to all the researchers to, to think about what mediumship is all about. So all these theoretical ideas, also forms of control, how to control mediumship, how to use instruments to measure all that. The mediumship of Paladino, I will say, impacted those factors greatly. And, and that's what I mean when I'm saying that a case that a medium can be very important in the development of a field, in this case of psychical research, even if you argue that she was fraudulent all the time, which I don't think was the case. But even if you argue that, her influence was uh, tremendous. And not, it was not only her, you know, people like Didi Hume in, in previous uh, years, in, in the 19th century, were also very influential like that. What they did and the way they behaved inspire all these research techniques and theories and ways of dealing with mediumship that affected uh, the field of psychical research. Mm -hmm. Do you think, Carlos, that uh, if somebody with that kind of talent were to show up today, that contemporary parapsychologists or, or psychical researchers uh, will be prepared to engage in more sophisticated studies? I will hope so that, that there, there will be, but 
you know, we, we, we have now a few mediums that make claims and I don't I don't see a lot of people in, in parapsychology, you know, being actively interested in, in doing it. What I, what I will argue is that there is the possibility of doing much more now. If it's done or not, that's, that's difficult to predict. But I think we have now uh, te technology that we did not have before for controlling the medium, uh, for a measurement of all kinds of effects at the time where they happen. So, you know, a lot of people in the old days, Lombroso, Morcelli, Richet, everyone that sat with her, with her will argue that, that she showed physical reactions related to the phenomena. And when a table moves out there, her hand will go like this. Or, or, her, or she will tremble when raps were happening around. There was like a physiological connection between her and the phenomena. And there were after effects. After the seances, she will vomit. She will be all, almost fainting. And what I'm arguing is that now we have so many ways of physiologically measuring those changes that may be able to do much more detailed studies. So there could be real progress theoretically. Assuming, of course, they can capture, you know, the real phenomena. If it will happen or not, as you, as you are asking, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I would like to say yes, that that it will happen, but we we have to see, you know, a lot of researchers, you know, especially those that are university-based, have limitations in terms of things that they can do, in terms of the resources that they have, in terms of their reputation, as I mentioned before. Or, so it, it's hard to predict all those things. And the issue of resources, I want to go back at that, is very important because in the days of Paladino, if you notice, a lot of the people that have seances with her, not everyone, but people like Aksakov, like Charles Richet, Lombroso, were people of monetary means. There were people that could bring the medium from Italy to France or other places have seances, and that will mean that when she will come, they will have several people staying in their houses. You have to provide food for all those people, entertainment for the medium. It's a lot of money and time. Current researchers don't seem to have a lot of those resources. Very few people in parapsychology today are rich, but I don't know of anyone. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, and that... And that's a practical reality that I think has affected a lot of these types of studies and will continue so in the future. But still, I think there are ways of finding them, of finding funds or finding uh, what we need is motivation. What we need is, is the belief that there is something important there that can be measured and uh, we can learn about it. I'm, I'm fully convinced of that. Uh, one final question, Carlos. Uh, since she was a spiritualist medium and people of that era were very concerned about the question of uh, post-mortem survival, uh, did she contribute in any way to uh, that endeavor? I would say that she did, but there is very little supporting survival in most of the English language publications about her. The, the only places that I have seen are the, the Italian reports, when some of them have been uh, translated. For example, there are the seances reported by Giuseppe Venzano. He was an Italian physician. And he sat with the medium 
in a small group that developed in, in Italy for the study of psychic phenomena. And uh, it was a spiritist group. Everyone was a believer. They were very open to that. The reports that come from there, I find, I have always found it to be very different from the reports from the SPR and from other people in which they focus only on the phenomena. They didn't move what happened in the sense. But in, in this Italian reports, we find materializations appearing that will even speak and say something that was recognized by someone in the group, like saying, hey, this 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 is my son that is here. There was a, one case that was like that, that then the, the son kind of appeared and some, someone in the in the sense room that was lighting off and the guy had a, a talent in drawing and he did a quick sketch and later on show it to the sitters and one of the sitters says, well, that is my son that died you know, a few years before and so forth. From those senses, we have little things like that that I think support the the idea of survival. But most of, of her mediumship, most of the reports have very, very little uh, about that. So, you know, she, she's never considering discussions of survival uh, of the, there are other mediums that are more, and of course she, she also had a few f mental effects. Like she, she said to have some telepathy here and there, and to do some writing, automatic writing. But that was not really her main thing. Her main thing were the the physical phenomena, and most people go to mental mediumship for evidence for survival, which I think, to be fair, yeah, that is stronger uh, with mental mediums evidence for, for survival. In, in fact, I gather that uh, many of the researchers like Charles Roche were more interested in the physical side of things than in the survival hypothesis. Yes, yes, that is true. Many, many of them uh, were. Some were particularly, the case of Lombroso is interesting because he started being concerned with the physical side and hysteria and uh, ideas of psychopathology and uh, later on he changed his mind and he accepted that spirits were probably affecting the mediumship because he, he thought that there were some physical effects that that a psychic force only coming from the medium was not enough to explain what happened so you know he in his, in his last publication on the subject he he clearly says that, but most other of the others, Richer at that time was certainly not into survival. Enrico Morselli, that I mentioned before, was the opposite. He was an anti-survival researcher, and he will explain everything through psychic abilities uh, from the living. If he was not the mind of Eusapia, he was the mind of the seers, you know. So he will say in that case where a materialization was was had a face that was recognized, he will say, well, the mind of the medium combined with the mind of the of the sitters, they will have that information. So that will come into the medium, she will put out a materialization and it will give the shape of a form that will be recognized in that way. And that's in the whole materialization literature, they talk about the idea of idioplasty. And that's the idea of putting an idea out there in form, giving form to an idea. 
Again, again, we are sculpting something. That's exactly what you're doing. But in a paranormal way, this energy goes out and the idea guides it and gives the features of, of that are in your idea, in your mind the, of a person into the form that gets materialized. And ideas like that, you know, get get moved from one side to the other. Spiritists will argue, no, the spirits are the ones that provide the idea, provide the identity. And the argument goes back and forth, uh, as you know, as, as, as it still happens today in the survival issue. Mm -hmm. Well, Carlos Alvarado, once again, a fascinating discussion. I, I really appreciate your sensitivity to the nuances and the complexities of, of this research and, and your historical perspective that uh, it's so important that we don't lose the, the knowledge that was gained a hundred years ago. We need to uh, bring it forward because who knows if something very similar will manifest itself next year. <laughs> that is true. I guess if we're prepared, we can recognize the importance, make the connections, and try to move forward. Well, you're doing a, a very important work, I think, in uh, keeping these events alive in the memories of uh, researchers today and in the memories of our viewers. So thank you so much for being with me, Carlos. My pleasure. Thank you.